Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Monica. And we're two fangirls who like to talk about media and knit. This is our podcast, While We Were Knitting. This month, we listened to an audiobook version of Princess Florlinda and the Forty Flight Tower, a novella written by Tamsin Muir and read by Mariah Quick. The story does more or less what it says on the tin. At the beginning, Princess Florlinda is a rather typical and sappy princess trapped at the top of the tower by a witch who set up 40 flights of monsters to challenge any prince who comes to rescue Florlinda. Unfortunately, none of them can make it past the dragon on the first floor. Florlinda starts having to take manners into her own hands, aided by a former garden fairy called Cobweb. It's definitely an adventure that goes some places you don't necessarily expect based on the premise, but it's very good. So this month, I knit uh, The Homecoming Party by Shay Johnson. And I knit The Infinite Cheer Hat um, by Mary Anarella. So Monica, I know when we initially discussed doing this, you were um, not a big consumer of audiobooks, and audiobooks for me also tend to be a little bit long, but because this is a novella, it's only about four hours. How did that kind of format work for you? It worked pretty well. I like audiobooks as a general rule, though I haven't been consuming very much of them lately, but I tend to use them much more on, say, for example, long car rides, mm -hmm. things where there really is nothing else that I can be doing and I will die of boredom if I don't do something so <laughs> audiobooks are very very good for me in that setting but otherwise I've I've never really been someone who could just sit and listen to an audiobook mm -hmm. because I read much more quickly than I listen obviously <laughs> so I specifically picked the pattern for this week where I need, just knew looking at the pattern, I was like, hmm, looking at that, I'm probably not going to be able to be watching anything while I'm knitting this. So I may as well be listening to something. <laughs> and it worked very well for me in that, in that particular setting. I really, I really enjoyed it. It also helped that the story is very involving. <laughs> yeah, it's very involving. And I kind of went in the opposite direction because I was on the sleeves of the cardigan. Mm -hmm. So it's just, and there's not even any decreases. It's a straight sleeve. So it's just like, all right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to knit a stockinette, you know, tube for four hours. And I was just very absorbed in the story, even though it was the second time that I had listened to it. Cause I listened to it back in, I don't know when it first came out, time is still questionable during quarantine. So it's like, did it come out this <laughs> summer? Did it come out last summer? When did it come out? I don't know, but she's a very, vivid and descriptive writer like one of the things that I really noticed the second time around was the way that she really makes the environs of the tower and the environs of all the monsters come alive and I could kind of see it in my head even though I'm not a big visual person when I'm reading because I'm just not great at picturing things in my head but I could definitely picture what was going on with this setting her turns of phrase, even in the settings where she's not like describing something that's visible or tangible or just, they're, they're pretty incredible. There are these like little anachronistic like line drops and you're like, oh, I totally get what she's talking about. It makes absolutely no sense at all in the setting of this particular story, but I totally get it and it works. For sure. For sure. And it's, also, I was sitting there being like, I need to step up my metaphor game. Like, I, I don't write with enough metaphors. My God, look at what she's doing. I really enjoy her, Tamsin Muir, as an author. Um, I read her Gideon the Ninth book, and I was just captivated by it. I read it, I've reread it like three or four times now. And her Hair of the Ninth is just insane. The way that it's structured is so wild. 
that once I had finished those two books, I'm like, all right, I don't know if I'm interested in this particular premise, but I trust that, you know, she's going to make it interesting and that I will come along for the ride. And I think she really did. And I think it's also very obvious for people who have read Gideon the Ninth or read any of her other work that this is the same person who's very interested in kind of like the mucky bodily particulars of, okay, you're in a tower, you have to kill 40 flights of monsters. What does that look like? It was one of those things where I was like, I'm re from the beginning. I, I, I mean, obviously you had forewarned me, hey, that premise may not exactly be <laughs> what you're thinking. <laughs> um, true. I do love fairy tale retelling sort of as a general rule. They're amongst my favorite things mm -hmm. ever. It was definitely grittier. There were definitely moments where you're like, oh, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it wasn't necessarily what I would consider dark in the beginning. No, it definitely ended up in that direction towards the end, which made sense altogether. You never really think too much about the psychological consequences of fighting your way through 40 towers of monsters, right? 40 floors of monsters. You don't think about the fact that, hey, the witch has put murderers yeah. in one of the floors because they're monsters, they <laughs> you, know? you know? So I appreciate that while there were definitely these like little drops of of sort of silliness and sort of fairy tale ridiculousness which get progressively more and more silly towards the end because you're like the the focus on there being one one loaf of wheat and one loaf of white and that goddamn door <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the focus in it seems more and more ridiculous because it becomes quickly more and more clear that, yeah, that's definitely not the issue anymore. <laughs> the everlasting orange that keeps growing back. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I definitely think the way that she structured the novella, the, not, the murderers are a huge turning point where you're realizing, oh, the Floralinda of 30 flights back, who was completely could not deal with the goblins was distraught and upset and didn't know how to handle people attacking her and thought that maybe I can make friends with them using this bread is very God, different that's right <laughs> like, maybe with them I've got this infinite bread and maybe the goblins like bread and you're like oh sweet summer child and is very different from the person who is on the 10th floor being like oh my God, I can steal their clothes. I'm so yeah. loved about stealing their clothes. Yeah. That's a very- After most of them have burnt to death, by oh, yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> and she's not, and well, I can't remember what the first floor was where, oh, the boar, where she sets yes. the boar on fire and she's like, this is so much, I'm retching, I'm gagging. Mm -hmm. And then she's surrounded by all these dead humans and it's just like, mm, clothes. Yeah. Where I'm yeah. at. It's definitely a very effective way to show that growth. And I also thought that the unicorn was very- Oh my God, funny. I was so shocked. I was so shocked. Even after everything, I was like, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> but it's very funny because it's still tied back to the Floralinda pre-tower where she's like, I hate yeah. horses. Everybody's always like, you should have been more confident and then they wouldn't have bit you, but they're the worst. And you're like, oh God, yeah. all right. But it's even, it's even more hilarious that, you know, she's like, oh, you know, princesses, 
unicorns bow down before them and put their heads in their laps. And I was like, oh, this is going to go poorly. And it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> what happened? Still a princess. No matter what Cobweb says, still a princess. Yep. 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 And it's, interesting to also catch hints through especially the second time where you can tell something is happening where Cobweb keeps like looking at her and being like you're changing in a way that I don't understand but it's not till you get to the witch and the witch is like of course you're not a princess you're not like this soppy little girl that I chopped up in the top of the tower you're a monster and she's like oh oh I guess that's correct (laughs) right I also expected her to kill the witch. Not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> that did kind of seem like where it might be going. And then they're like, no, no. Monsters and witches, natural partners. Yeah. <laughs> I did like that the point of view chapter for that last floor where she's finally escaped the tower and has killed the dragon is the witch. I thought it was yes. very effective after being in the point of view of Florilinda and Cobweb for most of the series that you finally get some outside perspective on what's been going on. Yep, yep. The narrator voice actually reminds me a little bit of the narrator in Peter Pan, who has that same sort of very opinionated, very arch, very funny, directed at the reader tone. So I, yeah, which makes the narrator almost a third character. I'm both glad that the story was as short as it was, but I also wanted to see what she did on those other floors. They kind of skipped. I was like, "Oh, the two-headed lion! That kind of sounds awesome." Oh no, we don't go two-headed lion chapter. <laughs> but I'm glad that the narrator had that sort of right, sort of almost almost jovial tone throughout mm-hmm. it all. Because that story could have easily gone into a very lugubrious direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's it's a rough narrative, not only of the terms of this is this person who's very unsuited to the situation, who's trying to still overcome and make herself suited to this person. But in order to live, Princess Florlinda like traps Cobweb and does this very horrible thing and knows that she's done this very horrible thing. And the narration doesn't really let you like ever it kind of goes away from it sometimes and, you know, focuses more on the day-to-day happening, but especially towards the end is like, no, it doesn't make it okay that she let Cobweb go after having captured her. It doesn't make it like, all right. But at the same time, Floralinda was like, I want to live. I still want to be alive. I want to make it to the bottom of this tower and can't see another way out. So it's a lot of tension, I think, in the narrative where you feel that sympathy for Floralinda because you also want her to live, but it's like, "Mm, not a great thing that she did. And the narrative no, no. that it becomes not even the worst thing that she's done, you know. <laughs> but when she's like, I can't believe you're still mad at me, and you're like, Really? <laughs> <laughs> I will be mad at you for literal years. Yes. Literal years. Yes. The cobwebs. And you know what? Back. Yep. And it's still angry, but comes back. Yep. Yep. For five years. For five it years. Happened. It was two years, and then it became five. <laughs> Well, Cobweb, I think, was angry that she had fallen in love with Floralinda back and was like, I came back and I'm angry about it. So, you know what? That's the, the, the whole idea of falling in love, being like feeling ill or like you're falling <laughs> off a cliff or something like that. And never like being in love, never being something that is thought to be good in, in the story is so like it's so contradictory to like the whole fairy tale ethos mm-hmm. of it. But I really kind of loved it. Um, 
Yeah. And the, the narrator explicitly says this, you know, like when when Flora Linda says she realizes, oh, no, I am in love with Cobweb. Mm. Um, and Cobweb's like, yay, this is awesome. This means you're going to let me go. And the narrator is like, there is no world in which any of this has ever gone right. <laughs> 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 Nothing falling in love with an elvish being. No, no, no. Good. <laughs> yeah. everything is bad. Everything is bad. Yeah, I really also loved the contrast between Cobweb and Floralinda as they try it, like, as they forge that relationship together through the basis of necessity, where you're clearly like, neither of these two people would have had anything to do with each other were they not trapped together in this situation, but they've come together and they're trying to do this anyways. And in certain ways, their weaknesses and strengths are complementary in ways that wouldn't necessarily appear obvious at first when you know cobweb ends up in the tower because of the storm and can't leave because she's injured but cobweb also never stops being like very contemptuous of floralinda yeah i mean cobweb is mean cobweb's not necessarily wrong but mean (laughs) yeah no i do i do enjoy cobweb as like a contrast to princess floralinda who even when she has become pretty much a monster is in certain ways like still the girl she was raised as is like very delicate and like I'm I'm so sorry but I'm going to murder you yes <laughs> or the whole thing about the chocolates yes that, that being the thing where where Cobweb goes oh no oh no things have gone wrong <laughs> says, if I get chocolates for Christmas rather than say oh I couldn't and eating just one I'm going to eat them all and Cobweb was like, oh, <laughs> what has happened? Cobweb's like, we've hit the point of no return. She is yeah. no longer a princess. What she is, <laughs> I cannot guarantee. But but yes, I, I appreciate that Cobweb is very aware of the nature of princesses, despite mm-hmm. not having any interaction with them herself. So I very much appreciated the whole like gender games with yeah. Cobweb. I really did. I was I was hoping Cobweb would be allowed to go back to there and it but no Cobweb is a she and has decided to stay a she for Florinda and I'm like oh there's something sweet about that also something creepy about it yeah. very sweet but also creepy is a accurate summation of most of their relationship but yes that is that is true yeah I do I think that would be one thing that I I love the story that would be one thing that I would tweak is when Cobweb came back it would be it, it, they pronouns instead of she pronouns to yeah. say, yes, Cobweb came back, but on their own terms and is now being like, yeah, we're going to do this, but I get a little bit more say. But it's also very funny when Floralinda is like, well, I need you to have a gender so I can make clothes. And Cobweb's just like, what? What? Okay. <laughs> That's insane thing that you want me to do, but sure, whatever. Which one's better? I want whichever one is better because I can't be bothered to change if you're wrong (laughs) that was also very funny just the commentary and just like the little asides about oh what does this choice mean and what's going on there and when Cobweb is leaving and she she says well I guess I'll be uh, I guess I'll stay a girl on alternate Sundays if I remember if I remember, yeah, for as long as I remember. Like, Cobb was like, listen, you might make me do this thing, but I'm not very attached to this concept. I'm going to be real. Yeah, yeah. And also Cobb being like this little unpleasant pyromaniac was also yeah. very funny. 
Yeah. <laughs> like the fire, the little salamander, like napalm that, that, um, she distilled she, she, yeah. out of the salamander tongue, right? I like the way that at the beginning, the monsters took like more time. There's like a lot more focus on like, how does Floralinda figure out how to conquer and fight those monsters? And then there were monsters at the end where I was like, oh, I'd be interested, like you said, with the two-headed lion to figure out, to see how she figured that out. But it doesn't become repetitive because Tamsin yeah. Muir is just like, all right, then she made it through these six floors. This was on them. Going on to the more emotional arc of the story, which is where we are now focused. At the beginning, when I was looking at the at the chapter titles and it was like 39, 39, 40 Redux, 39. I was like, how are we going to make it through 40 floors? <laughs> oh, I see. One of them, one of the floors is going to die by accident. Um, then they're going to make it through that one and then they're going to skip like five. And oh, okay. I see how this goes. And then, then when you get towards the end, it's only the floors that have some sort of emotional resonance that get any focus, like the yeah. murders or like the siren or like yeah. the unicorn and just yeah. everything else is just like, and then she killed it. She was getting yeah. good at killing things. She didn't even need the venom anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I also enjoyed the kind of puzzle of, especially in the early chapters, like how is she going to do this as a person who is incredibly not suited to this entire situation? Mm-hmm. Like, how is she going to survive? How is she going to keep going? Yeah. And I think that's very, like, satisfying as a reader to watch that puzzle be solved. It really is because when you hear about, like, what she had, she had the one loaf of wheat, she had the one loaf of white, she had a flask of milk, a flask of water, and an orange. That was, and then she had all of these completely useless economics books, <laughs> a bed, a silk, like, a silk gown, like ornamental stuff in the brazier, you know, because the fire was not meant to be lit. And you were like, how exactly is she, for example, how is she going to get a weapon? And yeah. and the way that they crafted this whole like little world, you know, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to make a spear out of a curtain rod and we're going to harden it in the fire from that we took from using these ornamental tongs that were never supposed to be used on anything. And we found this coal and we built a fire we're going to use orange oil to heal these terrible wounds mm-hmm. that you have that would have otherwise killed you. It's the use of a very, very princessy room to become essentially a war room. I mean, mm-hmm. though I am curious about considering how they took that room apart. I'm very curious about how it looked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rough. It must have looked real rough. Yeah, yeah. When the witch set it back up, she must have had to do some serious like cleaning and construction. And I also yeah. like when they get that new princess at the very, very end of the story, they're like, it's early spring. Yeah. We've given the new princess a little bit more time to get adjusted yeah. to the situation. Well, um, you know, I didn't even think about that because you're right. Florida Linda came in summer, right? End of summer. And that's yeah. one of the things that's like part of the pressure is not only how is she going to make it through those monsters it's like okay how does she make it through just living in the tower as situations become more and more difficult right right because it's snowing and you know and she has one silk dress and there are windows that cannot be closed and And there's no more birds because it's cold 
oh, that's right, her trapping and eating the birds because she was getting protein deficiency. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Kemsemir is very um, un. What what's the word I want? She's like un um, soppy. Not that's not yeah. what I want. Unflinching. Mm-hmm. Unflinching. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. About what it would take to survive in those situations. She's like, what would be the problems that this person would encounter? She's yeah. going to hit all of them. Yeah. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It was definitely like, okay, when the goblin bites her, she gets infected. How do you deal with that? It's not, yeah. you know, oh, this thing happens and then it's fine. It's like this thing yeah. happens and when things happen, they have consequences. I think if I were to knit something inspired by this book, I would go with one of, and I'm not sure which pattern, but one of them, and Mario's like very elaborate lace weight shawls with all those Mm. like patterns and like spreading out in just a very dramatic color because it's like also the the cobweb of cobwebs, but just like Mm. the drama of like, oh, this extreme situation. So I think Mm -hmm. that's what I would would knit inspired by this book. You know, I was, I was thinking something like that too, something the the one I was particularly thinking of is the the wild swan shawl by Anneliese Maygard, I think mm-hmm. is her is her full name. Very elaborate sort of cobweb lace style shawl, but it's specifically supposed to reference the the wild swan fairy tale. Oh. Um, yeah, so I thought that would be appropriate, but yes, I would probably be knitting it in something like blood red. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, all the times that Florlinda stabbed many, many monsters. Yes. <laughs> and at the end, when um, Cobweb lands on her on her shoulder, she's like, and then she got sticky with blood because she was covered with blood from the dragon that she just killed. That is now a yep. giant pile of diamonds. Yep, yep. And when the witch is like, you know, those were real diamond scales and Florlinda's like, yeah, I know. I'm aware. <laughs> it was an interesting choice. And I'm, I think I liked it to not show us the final battle with the dragon. It's like, once she gets there, it's kind of irrelevant how it happened. When the first time I was listening through, I was like, I believe this could end with Florlinda's death. I believe we could be finding her body at the dead at the bottom of this. I thought that that was a possibility too. Yeah. And I think, you know, if it had ended that way, I would have been like, okay, I could have accepted that. Yeah. (laughs) It's, yeah. I would have been bummed, but like, it's not an unsatisfactory ending to the story that has been built and has been built very cleverly. Yes. It's very funny though, how well the tower is described and scripted out and accounted for in all of its peculiars versus the understanding of the wider world of like, Mm -hmm. what does this universe look like? Look, we know that witches are the only natural predators of princes and that they're thicker in the ground (laughs) in summer. how many kingdoms are in this surrounding area? They have Shakespeare. They have Christmas. They have Thanksgiving and Christmas, yeah. Thanksgiving. They have a holiday that's in the fall, but we don't get any real feeling of what does Florilinda's parents' kingdom look like? We just know she's yeah. a princess. They have glovers. Yeah. Yes, she's, she's very focused on those gloves. <laughs> like my hands have become bigger from work. And it's like, well, yeah, that, that would do. Yes. It's interesting to think about that interplay. And I think that with a novella, it's very interesting. And I've, I've never read the actual like book book. I've only ever listened to it. So I don't know how many pages long it is, but it's interesting to think about what an author builds in and what they don't 
just in that sort of constraint of this very slim volume. I think the lack of details about the outside world like really focused the attention on this is her world now, mm-hmm. essentially. And so I, I appreciated that choice because I think focus on the outside on, oh, whether or not her family is searching for her or missing mm-hmm. her or even the details of how the country is run. We know that there's <laughs> economics and we know that because there are economics books mm-hmm. in her power, but none of that really matters because none of that would have probably mattered to Florilinda. No. Yeah. We get in some ways a little bit more about like the fairy world and how Cobweb thinks about her place as the bottom of the garden fairy in context of all of the other items and like the willow of the wisps and she's like and then I sent them out into the forest to die and also it's against their union rules yeah. <laughs> kind of like a little more situation in the politics and situation of the fairy world but it's still a little vague it's not if it's not relevant to the plot at hand then unless it's tossed out in a fun little detail it doesn't get brought up I really loved those fun little details though <laughs> oh, they're so good they're so good Camps and Mirror is so good I know yeah. you've read Gideon, right? Yes. But you've not mm-hmm. read Harrow. Mm-mm. I just need to talk about Harrow for five seconds. <laughs> it's a book. It's 500 pages long, more or less. You spend the first 400 pages going, what is going on? Like, what is actually going on? I don't understand anything. And then in the last 100 pages, you're like, oh my God, she's a genius. <laughs> I, just, I just feel very strongly about Harrow the Ninth and how you should read it. But I feel very strongly about Camps and Mirror's work in general and how it's very good. And she's in the still in the middle of the um, Locked Tomb series, which is the Gideon and the Harrow series. But mm-hmm. they recently announced that it was going to be four books instead of three. And I was genuinely oh. so pumped. So. <laughs> and I was also, I was not sure what to make of her writing this little novella in the middle of, you know, writing this big fantasy series on what's two kind of very different fronts because Gideon... Mm-hmm all about that world building and all about having these extended pieces that you can see and that you can pull together and get a good idea of what's going on. Whereas Princess Florilinda is set in a very different universe where the entire universe is this tower fundamentally. And she pulls it off though. Yeah. I imagine it was probably a nice writing palette cleanser <laughs> all things considered similar tone but very 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 different sort of content and kind of sequence of events it's definitely pretty straightforward in terms of plot it's not doing yeah. anything weird the question is just how how is the next floor going to happen and what's the yeah. relationship between Florinda and cobweb going to look like as it progresses and as they face these new challenges it was very good and I can't wait to see if she does I don't think she would do more in this universe because it's like why you've already yeah you've done everything you needed to do in this universe there's not I can't imagine there's going to be more of a story that would be different enough watching that second princess work her way down or do whatever she does next than it would be going through that first journey like I don't think that's a narratively necessary choice to make but I'm interested to see what other work she does outside of the Lock Tomb trilogy next. I agree with that. I think that I think that any stories that might come after in the same universe would almost sort of spoil the finality of the ending because it was a very good finality. <laughs> Her going up to the new princess and being like, "I want an effing challenge." Yeah, yeah. With <laughs> <effing>. <laughs> yeah. she yeah. learned from the murderers when she's angry. 
Yeah. And Cobweb is her agent. Yes. And Cobweb came back. Cobweb came back. I didn't actually cry again, little tears to be like, Cobweb came back, even though like Florinda had been, had done this awful thing and they had had this contentious relationship, they still forged this bond that endured past the constraints of the situation they found themselves in. I mean, Stockholm Syndrome, maybe, but (laughs) nonetheless. So the, the thing that made it make sense for me was that they had both become so different from the people they were when they initially met, that there was not the same understanding from people in their old lives that would have understood like, okay, this is who I am now. This is why I'm different. This is what I've become. Cobweb isn't a bottom of the garden fairy anymore. She's like, I mean, Cobweb never really was. No, but Cobweb was at least giving it the old school. What would you say? The old college try or the old try? try? Yeah. 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 What a very, uh, I think Tim's in here is Australian. It's a very Commonwealth way to like say Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I liked it. I enjoyed myself. I have to say, I went towards the very different spectrum on the end than you did, where I was just, again, knitting a sleeve in the round, in the round, in the round for four hours. And that was exactly what my brain wanted. It was occupying enough that I did not have to, that I was just, my hands were moving, but I didn't have to do any thinking. I didn't have to do any counting, especially because I was started near the top of the sleeve and just working my way down that it was a perfect mix for me. Yeah. For me, it was... For me, it was a perfect mix for the exact opposite reason, um, <laughs> because normally it actually it drives me a little bit crazy to be knitting without something else mm-hmm. going on in front of me, but very complex cables or like sideways cables with a pick, oh, wow. basically this one is sideways cables with like a pickup line at the top. You can't be watching something <laughs> while no. you're doing that. No. If I were to watch something while doing that, I would essentially not be seeing it at all. Yeah. So being able to listen to this thing going on, even though I did occasionally have to pause it to like count things, yeah. um, worked worked very well for me. It was a good choice. I can't imagine that you would want to hear like how they're constantly saying the flights of the tower while trying to count. You're like, no, those two things <laughs> yeah. will not mix. So that, I also appreciate it. And I think this is just my personal preference is that I'm very good at podcasts, but I'm not very good at pod, I'm not pod books, pod books is a word at audiobooks just because they're ten- like I tend to lose track of the narrative mm. goes for too long but four hours is something that I can like keep track of and I can sit through and still kind of remember what happened at the beginning when I'm at the end instead of being like wait what happened four hours is a, is a very nice listening length for a for a novella yeah very true very true I know that one day you mentioned that you enjoyed also the similar length every heart of doorway so maybe one day Mm -hmm. we can listen to every heart of doorway as well and that will be our second little oh i would love to listen to that again it's been a long time (laughs) oh well next month we are going to be watching dune the 2021 version it's all buzz in the news so we'll be watching that and monica have you ever read the dune books I have, yes. Well, not all of them. I think I've read two of them, two of them Yeah. Um, back in high school, long time ago. <laughs> I read them in middle school and everything just went. Oh, wow. <laughs> my, father, my father had them on the bookshelf and I was just uh-huh. like raiding his bookshelf for sci-fi novels and fantasy novels at that point. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to read Dune. And just so much went over my head. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to uh, consuming this movie and seeing how it turns out and seeing. I did recently read the Wikipedia entry when I heard they were making this movie to be like, I'm pretty sure it's weird. I think I've heard a descriptor of the 
um, older movie that, that a podcast of mine did. And that also sounded quite weird. And I was like, oh no, it was, <laughs> it was very weird, correct? I haven't consumed this in 20 plus years, but it was insane. So it's going to be an interesting experience to see how the movie turns out and what they, how they adapted that to the big screen. Because I'm like, should it be adapted to the big screen? I know that people keep trying to do this. This is like the third adaptation in media of this property, but I guess we'll have to watch the movie and find out. So It's true. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye.